Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. Let's Give a Damn is the show where I chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and they gave a damn about it. My guests are incredible humans and damn givers doing all types of work in every corner of the world. I hope that today's podcast will help you give a damn in your world today, wherever you may be. Today, I'm sharing my favorite highlights from some of the conversations I've had over the past few months. I do this every so often, and it's time for another. In this episode, I'll be highlighting my conversations with Josh Radner of How I Met Your Mother fame and an incredibly smart guy, Justin Jones, a former congressional candidate and activist and one of my favorite people in Nashville, Lisa Sharon Harper, a speaker, author, theologian, activist, and one of my favorite Twitter follows, Joel Stein, author of In Defense of Elitism and an all-around fantastic human, Yusra Mardini, Syrian refugee, Olympic swimmer, and an all-around badass human, and Mike McHarg, also known as Science Mike, an author, and one of the smartest people I know that is no exaggeration. I purposefully chose parts of these conversations that'll pique your interest and make you want to listen to the entire thing if you haven't already. So as you go along, if you hear something you like, if you hear something you want to hear more about, go back and listen to that entire episode that none of these will disappoint. Before we jump in, I want to remind you during these hard days that I love you, that we need you, reach out if you need help. Keep making what you make. Keep being who you are. Keep moving forward. And did I mention that I love you? Because I do. Okay, now that I got that mushiness out of the way, I just really wanted to share that with you here at the beginning of this podcast. Now that that is out of the way, let's jump right into the show. Here are some of my favorite moments from conversations I've had in this order. Josh Radner, Justin Jones, Lisa Sharon Harper, Joel Stein, Yusra Mardini, and Mike McHarg. Let's go. It's it's, it's funny how there's this idea that like like a kind of fundamentalist, any any sort of fundamentalism, right? Which mm-hmm. is born of this idea th- that of a literal interpretation of text. You know, and I love how Richard says, like, literalism will yield the least fruitful reading. You'll get the least amount from reading it literally. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, like reading a fairy tale literally. And yeah. being like, well, the wolf ate the grandmother and the little red riding hood and spat them both out <laughs> and they're fine. That makes no sense. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, that's not really what the story is about. Yep. So, um, but, you know, his vision in Universal Christ is so massive. Like, um, someone told me this great thing their pastor said that. Christianity um, is an amazing thing. It's just too bad it's never been given a real shot. Wow, you know, <laughs> like, like, like to really, f- like to really follow what Jesus was up to. Yeah, as far as I can tell. Yep, will be is so radical. Yep, like he says, you know, le- you know, you got to leave your family to follow me, and that. How do we turn this into like a family values religion? That's that. That's actually not what it's about. That's <laughs> like he's saying, for sure, leave your family. Yep, and to and follow me. To follow me. Yeah. And you know, a lot of what I can tell, and this is not exclusive to Christianity, but a lot of religion is control mechanisms. You know, it's it's um, it's it it really it's it, it's almost you know, I learned in Israel the, the 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 commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain. The Hebrew is lotisa et shem Hashem alakecha, like 
thou shalt not carry the Lord's name in vain, which literally means, you know, don't use God for false ends. It's beautiful. Right? Yeah. Which is such a and crazy. Intr- more interesting thing than saying, don't, don't say yeah. God damn it. Yeah. You know, 100%. like it's so much bigger. Yeah. And we're all in violation on some level of that commandment, especially in religion, you know, using religion to guilt people, using religion to condemn people, shame people. I think that's a violation of that commandment. Yeah. It's happening at the highest levels of our oh. country right now. Oh, the biggest. Um, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I don't know if I've ever seen, uh, or I guess I'm, I mean, I'm young enough that there's a lot, a lot of presidents and a lot of governments before me, iterations of governments. But I don't know that there's ever been a government that hoard the the Jesus in the Bible in the way that this. Well, I wish. I mean, I'm a little older than you, and I will say that Reagan did it, and George W. Bush did it, the same, the same, the same. I so mean, what's different there, about this one then that feels so much more belligerent and I think like, what's different hurtful. about it is that their uh, chosen prophet is so odious <laughs> so, and so unchristian. So easy to yeah. He's so unchristian in so many ways. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, yeah. and um, you read the Christianity Today. Oh yeah, piece yep. right. I yep. thought it was excellent. Yep, it was it excellent. Was fantastic. And I saw that guy, the guy who wrote it, you know, was interviewed. He said, "I'm not making a, a political judgment about the guy. No. I'm making a moral judgment yep. about the guy, and he's a failure. Yeah, he is an he is an absolute moral failure by yep. any anyone's any any judgment of any world religion would say like these are our precepts, these are our virtues, yep. and he's he's doing none of them. Yeah, other than checking off in a very politically calculated way." This is what this base of mind, this unshakable block of people that believe I'm, do, you know, this this unholy but you know prophet messenger, and you know the the, the whole thing about God uses, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, people like with, flawed people, flawed yeah, people. yeah. Look at David, and, yeah, and all these different, yeah. yeah. And but if someone's you know on the other side of the aisle also flawed, they're from the devil and they must be destroyed. And you know the the I I think there is a, an awakening, especially among young evangelicals or like ex evangelicals. Is yep. would you consider yourself? Kind no, of I'm still. Well, I I was yes, I would say I'm still fully like Christian. Yeah, yeah. N- not I don't want to participate. in are you anything a, are, are you a Rachel Held Evans fan? Huge you, Rachel Held Evans. Yeah, fan. yeah, yeah. So I read two of her books. I read Faith Unraveled, the first one, and and uh, Searching for Searching Sunday. Searching for Sunday. Yeah. Those books are so beautiful. Yeah. Like I can't recommend them highly enough. Yeah. You know, I'm a Jewish guy reading. I just thought they were. To me, I'm really interested in anyone who, I I sense a very sincere longing for like truth and and peace and community and like God, like what, like, I mean, those are all euphemisms, I think for God, like, yep. um, and she was just, I mean, it's such a, it's so tragic, you know, super her, tragic. Yeah. I mean, far, death, far but, too soon. Yeah. Oh my God. But what a fierce mind she had. Yeah. Like absolute ferocious thinker and, uh, and hilarious too. And really I just, I, I just hate, you know, one of the, one of the mysteries of the world is why does she go and other people stay I for, know. for decades longer you know like that's just that's hard like you look at Ram Dass, you're like dude he lived a full life like yeah. sure we'd love to keep him for another hundred but yeah he lived a full life yeah and then you have rachel's who who i mean talk about her in 40 more years like the wisdom i know like she would have been like she still she already is a prophetess that will you know that will remember for for 
yeah. a long, long time. Yeah. But, you know, double her age and her experience and her wisdom. Yeah. And it's always tragic when people like that are. It's interesting, though, because I didn't, I think I had seen her name a couple times, but I didn't know about her until her death. And I started reading the. Oh, wow. Because okay. of, because of RHE, that yep. hashtag. Yep. And I was brought to tears by a lot of those testimonials. And I thought, who is this woman that did all this stuff for people that that moved these people and brought them back to the church and 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 helped them redefine their relationship to God and religion and and um, that's when I started reading her. Yeah, and I'm not saying, oh, she had to die so I could discover her. No, but, but it, in her death, she probably uh, converted a lot of people, and I, I use that term very broadly. No, you I know, get it. She 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 probably brought a lot of people to her words. In a different way, I know I, I know dozens of people in my own personal circle that didn't give a shit about it before, and now they're like huge fans. Yeah, like bought all the books, yeah. are reading it, devouring it. Yeah, post death. So that's I mean that's a beautiful thing about legacy, right? Is yeah. that we don't know the impact we're having until we're gone, and then things start springing up, or or they don't, or we have you know a legacy not worth talking about. And, right, and right. people just did for, you read um, David Brooks's book, The Road to Character? Yes. Great book. Yeah. I love that book. Yeah. But the, uh, that thing at the beginning, which he actually got from a rabbi, this Lithuanian rabbi, um, Telushkin, or not Telushkin, um, Soloveitchik, uh, about the distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot in terms of like the resume virtues, you know, obviously like, oh, this is the car I drive. This is the job I have. Yep. This is how much money I make. This is what the peacock feathers. This is yep. what makes me yep. interesting in a capitalist society or valuable. And then the eulogy virtues are how will people talk about you when you're dead? You know, were you charitable? Were you kind? Were you a good friend? Were you, did you show up for people in emergencies, all these things? And, you know, when I get obsessed with resume virtues, I know I'm in the ego, but the eulogy virtues are like the, the sturdier. It's the real stuff. It's the real stuff. Three seven two zero eight. We know is the most incarcerated district. I mean, incarcerated zip code in the nation, and it's by no accident that we also are the community where Core Civic, formerly CCA, was founded, a for-profit private prison company. And so we know that there is an incentive to incarcerate Black and Brown communities that needs to be addressed here. And that one of the ways that we can address that is by saying that we should not have for-profit private prison companies. We should abolish them and cancel our contracts with them. Both in Nashville, there's a conversation at the city level, but on a federal level, we need to have this discussion as well. Um, and we need to look at, you know, not just like when people get out, but like now we know when they're moving toward these electronic monitoring systems where you'll still be incarcerated, but you'll still, you know, you'll just be at your home with this monitor on. And so I think it's so interesting, too, that um, how this relates to going to democracy, where one in 12 people in Tennessee cannot vote, one in 12 black men cannot vote because of felony disenfranchisement. So when they incarcerate you, they take away your vote. They make it harder for you to get a job. They make it harder for you to get health care um, because they, you know, they try and put this label of felon on you. And and so I think it's it's, it's just so outrageous that we have so many people here who were in the buckle of the Bible who talk about redemption all the time. And they, they, they talk about redemption when it comes to certain people, but when it comes to people who, who have paid their debt, who, you know, have done their time and who even in fact should not have been in jail in the first place, if we're honest. So many of them. So many for of sure. them. Um, there's no redemption for them. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no opportunity for them. And so I think we have to analyze that why it is in Tennessee that African-Americans are only 20% of the population. And yet we make up disproportionate amounts of the prison population here, um, 40% in some places. And so I think, I think we have to have a larger conversation about that and talk about it as a way of, of ending mass incarceration, but also building, um, you know, looking at restorative justice. And so what does that mean? You know, when we talk about criminal justice, we also talk about the death penalty. We need to abolish the death penalty in our state. We yes. have had this increase in, in executions 
was an execution on Got Thursday. Got one coming up Thursday, yeah. Exactly. And, Which and, is just, I mean, we went years without any. Without, yeah. And now in the last 18 months, there's been six or seven. And there's no like, reason. It's insane. No, there's no reason at all. And, and Bill Lee should know better. Yeah. He is a Christian man. Yeah. He says he follows Jesus, who called us to make peace. Mm-hmm. Um and who was very in his whole in his whole life and his everything he taught was very anti. He would. There's no doubt in my mind that if we could pick a variety of issues, but he would be very anti death penalty, Definitely. like in every way. And here we are as a Christian city, yeah. and I say that very loosely, but there's so many Christians, air quotes, Christians here, being led, you know, in a state by a Christian governor that we're going to execute yet someone else in a very horrific way. The whole liturgy, my friend Shane Claiborne called it like the liturgy of death. Like, yeah, like the, even everything, the preparation, the last meal, all of that, like it is sickening. And yet we're going to do it again in two days. Yeah. I mean, when I was interning in DC in 2016, I went to their fast that they were having outside the Supreme court about the death penalty. That's really where I, where I met Shane and where I I heard the story about, um, one of the things that really shifted me was a mother um, whose child had been killed, and yet she was against the death penalty for the the man who killed her daughter because she said, as a Christian, she said, as 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 a Christian, the state killed my savior. I cannot allow the state to kill anybody else, you know, mm. because and that's something that just stuck with me that grace and that sort of that sort of knowledge. And I think it's something that we like here, where we do have a lot of Christians. We you know people who claim to be Christian. We have churches on every corner here, and yet you you don't have. You don't have that way of life. You have systems of death that are being perpetuated, that are being uplifted, that are being valued because there's no, nothing comes out of killing people to show that killing is wrong. Nothing comes out of that. And yet it's just it's just this sort of obligation that they feel like, you know, we've been to the vigils, everyone that's happened except one. And it's just this big triumphant display of state power. You have people on horseback that's down it. at the priv- at Riverbend, you know, standing there. You have I mean, it's just it's a display of state power, the ultimate authority of state power, which is taking life. And it's and it, it just it, it should disturb all of us, because when they kill people, we know that it's not just in the name of the state, but it's in our names. They say the people of Tennessee. So each of us have blood on us yeah. you know, when that happens. And that's why, you know, we stand out there. And and, you know, and it's a murder. Like on paper, it's a homicide. It, yeah. It's not – that's the name that they call it. Yeah. So in our name, that's a very good point, and that makes it even all the more tragic, that in our name, the powers that be are murdering someone for wh- – whether it's murder or rape or whatever. Like they – you hurt someone else, now we're going to hurt you exactly. in the ultimate way. Like I think about that as a parent all the time, and, and my wife and I have grown – well, my wife's amazing. She didn't grow in this. I've been growing in this, where for a while – I would get caught in these kind of, I have three kids and they're amazing, but they're kids, they're kids, which means that at certain times they're acting terribly. And I would yell at them to stop yelling at their sibling, (laughs) right? Parents do it all the time or we don't spank our kids, but there would be, you know, we've heard story, we've seen it. And I grew up in that kind of a, you know, I grew up in a very abusive environment where it was, we're going to spank you. We're going to hurt you for hurting your sibling. Don't hit your brother. Now come here and get your punishment. I'm going to hit you. And we justify it because we're in charge. Mm. And we're doing in this death penalty, which is very a huge part of the mass incarceration conversation, is it's a power move. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. We can hurt you ultimately, and we're going to do it as a, as, a, as a display to everyone else. Like, don't mess with us. This is what awaits you if you do this. Versus... Uh, redemption and restorative justice, as you called it, and that's not you. That's a conversation that's happening. But yeah. restorative justice, we go and we ultimately 
take their lives, the, the, the only thing they have left, right? We're, it goes back to the health conversation too. Like we're taking the only thing that they have away from them as a punishment, yeah. as the ultimate slap on the wrist for something they did instead of, yeah, it's, it makes no sense. And when we, we've been able to have some sort of like intersectionality around this discussion, um, talking to Brother Clayne, uh, bro, excuse me, Brother Shane Claiborne, yeah. was, um, it's interesting. So one of the things I was at the legislature trying to challenge was the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, the first grand wizard of the KKK, Confederate general, a white supremacist um, who's displayed in the Capitol. And it's so interesting to me that every time we would go up there to try and get him removed, you know, he's someone who massacred 300 surrendered black troops at Fort Pillow. Every lawmaker who supported his statue there would say the same thing. He redeemed himself. He changed his ways. And so I would question myself, why is redemption okay for this man? Yep. And you, yep. you would, in fact, give him a bust in the statue and honor him when he was a murderer. He did the most vile slavery, rape, all these things. And he's redeemed. But that same redemption does not extend to the people who you will go and kill by not abolishing the death penalty. Like, what is, where's the disconnect there? And they don't even feel the dissonance. No. It's just, I mean, that's, no. that's what this is about, so. Maybe we'll just go here right now. But I actually think that's part of the problem with what's going on right now. The very myopic kind of, so, so right now, people are saying, they're looking at this one instance. Mm -hmm. Especially white people, they're looking at this one instance. They are saying one black man was murdered in broad daylight for allegedly forging a check, something that no one should ever die for. And then subsequently, all this looting happened, right? And, 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 and we can see the videos, a lot of, they're bussing people in. They're so, like the St. Paul mayor yesterday said, they didn't arrest one person that wasn't from out of state. Like there's so much crazy shit going on there. So we won't even get into who's looting and why and all that stuff, right. but that's not the problem. They're looking at this one thing and saying, look at, you know, Target and Cub Foods and AutoZone and all these small businesses, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is not okay. And like, the reason you think it's not okay is, first of all, you've never experienced anything that a black person has experienced every single day. But you are looking at this as one thing, one instance on one day in, in one city in one America, in one country. This and that's willful. Let me just say, that's willful. It's not, it's not like they don't know. I and mean, we just... A week before that had two. Yep. Two. The week before. Yep. This is this is not something happening in Iceland. This is literally a cluster of events that have happened. And another whole event happened the exact same day. Yes. In New York City. Yep. So you cannot you, to do that is I, I believe honestly to do that is sin. It is literally sin because what you're doing is you're lying. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to whoever you're talking to because you're trying to paint, you're trying to paint a world. You're using the structure of the, of your argument, which is willfully myopic, willfully focused in super, super tight so that you can't through the structure of your argument, it actually intentionally leaves out the rest of the context. It decontextualizes the events of the day. And that, you're right, it is the problem. And I'll tell you what, it's also the problem with our faith. So mm -hmm. the, the evangelical, the white evangelical faith has decontextualized brown Jesus, physically brown, politically black Jesus. Actually brown, him, political him, Jesus. Literally, yes. like literally yeah. brown, politically black Jesus. Lifted him right out of the context put him in a purple robe, gave him milky white skin and blonde hair and blue eyes, and then made him think like a Western Europeaner. 
Homeboy didn't do that. Nope. Homeboy, he was killed by Western Europeaners. Yep. That's who killed him. So I, I really literally, I literally believe it is a mode of operation that is violent. It has impacted our world violently. It has impacted the faith violently. And, and, and honestly, it has done violence to the white soul. Because by, by limiting, by lifting out, by decontextualizing, not only the gospel, not only what happened to Mr. George Floyd, but by decontextualizing their very bodies, their very selves, they have done violence to themselves. Because what they did when they came here, when they came here back in 1492, and then when the pilgrims were, were here and the Puritans, and they created in the, in the 1660s in Virginia, and then the 1670s and 80s, and my own ancestors who were here were direct, direct recipients of those first race laws that created the construct of whiteness. When they created that construct, what they did was they severed their own rootedness to land and people, and they made themselves white. So they uprooted themselves. They are people without roots. And when you are people without roots, you will be violent because you will violently try to maintain what sense of self you have. And the only sense of self given to anybody who claims whiteness is what whiteness offers. And the only thing that whiteness was created to offer was the, was the belief that you as a quote white person were created by God with the divine right and unique capacity to exercise dominion in the world. In other words, to lead everybody else. Yep. As a person of European descent, you, if as a white person, when you let go of your European heritage, and you let go of the fact that you're Irish or Italian or German or, or Scandinavian or Lithuanian or Russian. When you let go of that and you say, no, I'm white, which is exactly what they did throughout the whole 18th and 19th century. People fought, excuse me, they fought their way all the way to the Supreme Court, literally, to prove that they were white legally. Now, why would you do that? Why does it matter? It matters because the laws as they were set up only saw people who were declared white as the ones created to exercise dominion on this land. So if you don't want to be a slave, then you need to be white. Uh -huh. And if you're in between, you're nobody and you're a perpetual non-citizen. So you have to be white in order to be human in that construct. So when they created that construct, they created, they basically created a funnel into identity-less people. Hmm. People who have no roots and who will fight to the death in order to keep the one thing they have, 
which is the declaration that they were created to exercise dominion on this land, unique, uniquely created in that way. And it has permeated everything. So, I, I mean, I really literally think that that, that has influenced everything. Yeah. It, it uproots them from self. It uproots the scripture from the actual context of the Bible. Decontextualization is the project of whiteness. I've always struggled with this, honestly, because I don't want to go the way of everybody has their own truth and you can't speak into this. This is how I'm feeling and you can't tell me otherwise. But also everybody is going through different shit. And so in, in your in your view, like how, how, do, how, can, we, how can we toe the line there? Or um, do you not need to toe the line and there's a different solution altogether? I don't think you need to toe the line at all. It's just empathy and curiosity, right? Like you have kids. <clears throat> One of the great lessons for me with having a child is like, oh, we are all radically different. Like we are having really different emotional reactions. We're, we're, our brains are taking in different amounts of information. And I don't mean that in some kind of like pseudoscientific way. I mean like, right. oh, my son who has sensory processing called disorder, but like he is taking a lot more sensory information than me. Like mm. he is seeing things I don't see quickly. He is, um, his visual perception is radically different. The things right. he's hearing and bothering him, I don't even hear. So like just on that level, we're yeah. all radically different. And and not expecting people to be just like you. Um, and and uh, making that sound, that's the negative version, right? Of just accepting. But sure. then there's the positive version of just being like curious and yep. empathetic about like these wondrous differences between us is, uh, yeah. you know, people who were raped by their, as, as kids, have really different health outcomes, right? Yep. And like, there's an empathy for that, but there's also a curiosity, like what, why? Like, how does that happen? Like, what is, um, so I, I don't know, maybe that, that part I think isn't that hard. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're spot on. Some of the and smartest- And that's the part where like I, in the book, we'll get to this later, where I talk yep. about the danger in myself and other people who are in the intellectual elite of our smugness. When we talk about, people who voted for Trump as idiots who don't understand and vote against their self-interest because they're soybean farmers and they are too dumb to realize the tariff is going to hurt them. Like, go talk to these people. They're yep. not, they're not voting against their, I mean, we're all voting against their interests, right? We're, the political science tells us that people vote really altruistically. People will often, if not always, vote against their own interests. Like Warren Buffett wants higher taxes, right? We know tons of rich liberals who want higher taxes they're not stupid they know it's not good for them but they want what's best for the country and the soybean farmer who votes for trump also wants what's best for the country so so the smugness i think is the first step in getting towards that level of empathy and curiosity You said that um, the war started when you were 12 or 13. How how many years of war did you experience between then and when you and Sarah decided to leave? Uh, four or five years. And, and, um, what, and what was that like? I mean, living in a, in, a, in, a, in a country that was being just beat on by war. So first of all, everything was getting two or three times more expensive 
I had to work with the age of 15. My sister had to work. My mother had to work. Uh, my father left the country to Jordan to train uh, his swimming coach. So basically, we all worked just to afford food on the table. And not even you're not even thinking. We got to the point where you're just thinking about how I'm going to live, how I'm going to afford food. You know, this and no one should go through that. Obviously, bombs attacks, like whatever you are, whatever the time is, you never know. Every time you're leaving the house, you don't know if you're going to come back. Every time you're leaving the house, you, your mom obviously is freaking out because she doesn't know if um, her kids are coming back, you know. Um, in the swimming pool, there was also bomb attacks. Um, the glass would always like break in the pool because of the pressure of the attacks outside, as example. I even know that some players once died, like uh, some football players, they had a match and then there was a bomb and some of them died. And this was like really horrific to me. And so living this every day for four or five years, at one point it became normal, which is very, very sad. Like, no, I don't want it to be normal because it's not. So that's actually the reason why we left because we were like, you know what? I can't work all of my life just to afford food on the table. I can't, this is not the purpose of me living on, on this planet. I don't want this to be my life. So that's why we left. I wanted also, I thought also, even though I'm so young, I thought, I thought of my kids. I thought of my, you know, my future Family, life. Like, yeah. yeah. Do I want like to lose someone? No, I, I'd rather try to almost lose my life actually on the trip. To Germany, then, then almost lose my life every day. Then being in this fear every day, so that's why we decided. Okay, we'll take this dangerous trip, and uh, we will try actually because you know we're human in the end, and we will. You you want to always try to survive and have a better life. One, yeah, we we face paralysis due to a number of choices or a magnitude of a challenge. Uh, when we can't get a handle on an action and we can't see an immediate effect from that action, that is a powerful disincentive to homo sapiens as uh, behavioral patterns go. Uh, and then tied up in that is a lot of things we're doing, binge watching Netflix, for example, is medicating an inability to manage our feelings mm -hmm. to relate to understand and manage our feeling so what we also find is that as people learn to have a more present relationship with their own emotional cycles we've become less prone to go into these cycles of compulsive self-medicating like media consumption or compulsive eating or all these kinds of patterns but so even though you may have a hunger to make some change in the world you don't have the energy to do it because all of your energy is going to muzzling feelings that happen in your body that you're afraid to experience. Wow. So for those of us who have been conditioned against experiencing our own sadness, when something happens or sadness is a normal, natural, healthy thing for our bodies to do, when we don't think we can feel sadness, then we feel anxiety or shame instead. And anxiety and shame are much more difficult feelings than sadness because they stick around forever just sap our energy and they're so unpleasant sadness when allowed to 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 flourish in our hearts and in our emotional landscape 
grows and swells and then fades and leads us to a point of resolution. Anxiety, shame, and guilt and worry do not. We hate them, but our brains learn other things make us happy. I know that when I feel anxiety, if I eat an Oreo cookie, I stop feeling anxiety immediately. Right. And the more Oreo cookies I eat, the less anxiety I feel. And so our brain, way below the part of it that makes decisions like today, I want to do something about xenophobia in America. The brain is preoccupied with getting rid of anxiety, which means as we sit there and we sit down on the computer and we get into the work we care about, we get on Twitter and we look at what a, a racial justice advocate says that we follow and admire and respect, then we feel anxiety. And this deep in our brain, our brain goes, I know what to do about anxiety. The good place is on Netflix. And I got a package of Oreo cookies yesterday. Hell yeah. And then we just go to that place. Whereas when we have a mindful relationship with our feelings, when I open Twitter and I read about a black American being shot for jogging and injustice in that, I just cry immediately. Yeah. I just immediately with Twitter open, just weep because I'm learning to get access to my sadness. Mm. And when I let myself have access to the sadness, the cycle of media consumption doesn't drive me to defensive and escape mechanisms to self-medicate. That's the show today, friends. I hope these highlights, these snippets will help you today and this week as you continue figuring out how to give a damn in your life, in your world. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links and more details about the show, including more about our sponsor during this season of the podcast in the show notes at letsgiveadam.com. I created this show. Chad's Navely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family, and you can reach me anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Dot com. Hello at let's give a damn.com. Sending so much love and peace to each one of you. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>